so. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious and loving Father, pour out thy Holy Ghost upon us this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Savior, to enlighten us and to open our hearts to the truth of thy word and the faith of thy holy Catholic Church. May thy word and faith take deep root in our hearts and bear forth much fruit in our lives. Bless this place, this chapel, and place of gathering, that it may be a center for worship, evangelism, outreach, and ministry in this neighborhood and beyond. We pray thee, O Lord, that all of us would grow in our understanding of the faith and be ready to give a defense of the hope that is within us. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, please uh, be seated. Um, uh, today we are looking at the the history, faith, and order of the undivided church from 120, although I'm going to start a little bit earlier than that, from 120 to 1054. Why would 1054 mark uh, the, the, where I would end when speaking of the undivided church? Because <laughs> it was no longer undivided. Um, uh, in 1054, so we'll get to to all of that um, as we move move through. Um, quickly, when I say um, Catholic with a big C, what do you think I mean? Catholic with a big C. Not primarily, I don't. Yeah, but it, got, it has to be clarified a little bit more than that, because if we simply just say Catholic with a big C means universal, that, that means any Christian today. I'm looking for something... As defined in the original... Yeah. I'm referring, right, I'm referring to the undivided, undivided church... Of the first Christian millennium. I don't know how to spell that, but whatever. Millennium. So I'm referring to the undivided church of the first Christian millennium. So I'm referring to the historic Catholic church. Not the Roman Catholic church, but the one undivided church of the first Christian millennium. What were, whether that church was in the Celtic lands or Canterbury uh, or Gaul or Prussia or Rome or Ephesus or Jerusalem or India, wherever this church was, it had in particular four things in common. Let me throw out one and you tell me if this... all of that church was under the authority and jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. No, no. Nope, that's not true. Yeah. Um, they were united in that there was only one language of the Mass. No. Nope. nope. In fact, the Mass was always in the vernacular in the very early church. Uh, what were some of the things then that united the church? 
scripture. Right, all right. So, right there. So, the, the canon of Holy Scripture. That is, the, the Holy Scriptures as the, the Bible as the Word of God written. So, the authority, power, primacy of God's Word written. What else? Well, the, you're, you're, you're going down a different, a slightly different route. Okay. Yeah. Yes. There was, so there was one canon of Holy Scripture, essentially speaking, and there was one apostolic ministry. Wherever you went in the church, you had bishops, priests, and deacons ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles. So there was one, uh, this should be singular, I'm sorry, one apostolic ministry. Where were the Protestant ministers? They didn't exist, that's right. What if you wanted to go to a church where you did not have bishops, priests, and deacons uh, in the apostolic succession? Where could you go? Nowhere. Nowhere in the world, that's right. So you had one canon of Holy Scripture, you had one apostolic ministry. What's another? What? Yeah, essentially, one faith articulated in the creeds and the ecumenical councils of the church. And we're going to talk about those a little bit more today. Okay? You had one faith essentially articulated in the creeds and ecumenical councils of the church. So you had one canon of Holy Scripture, you had one apostolic ministry, you had one faith, and one other, that is Anglicans, you should have said number as number two. One sacramental life of the church, particularly with an emphasis on holy baptism as birth into Christ, and Holy Eucharist as our spiritual nourishment. These four things united the church wherever it was. Whether it was in Constantinople, Rome, whether it was in India, whether it was in Ephesus, whether it was in Gaul, whether it was in the Celtic lands, whether it was in Canterbury, wherever it was, these four things held the church, held the unity of the church Okay, there was one canon of Scripture. Now, we all know that that's a, a bit of a simplification. Uh, you know, it took time for the canon to emerge within the life of the church. There were certain discrepancies. But overall, there was one canon of Holy Scripture that was received by the, the undivided Catholic Church. There was one apostolic ministry. There was one faith and one sacramental life. Could you imagine... If even with the differences we have in, the, in Christendom today, if we still agreed on these four principles of unity. So you might say, well, look, we think the Mass should be in Latin. We believe the Pope has jurisdiction over the whole church. We believe in purgatory. We believe in the Immaculate Conception of Mary. We'd have enough problems. We're debating about homosexuality. We're debating about women in the priesthood. We'd have plenty to worry about, right? 
But at least we would be somewhere on the same page if we still held to the one canon of Holy Scripture and its authority and its power, one apostolic ministry, there wouldn't be all this problem about validity and invalidity and irregularity and, you know, and um, uh, everyone would celebrate yesterday. Everyone, everywhere in the world would have celebrated the great feast of St. Gregory of Nyssa. <sighs> and the fans go wild. Okay. Um, one sacramental life, you wouldn't be the well, I don't believe that Jesus is present. It would just be maybe arguments over how he is present, but there, there wouldn't be anything known as the real absence of Jesus, okay, as I like to jokingly call it. So when I refer to Catholic as a big C, I'm referring to the undivided church of the first Christian millennium that essentially was unified in the canon of Holy Scripture and the authority, power, primacy of scripture, the apostolic ministry, bishops, priests, and deacons ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles. And it wasn't a legalistic thing where you zapped by the right zapper. Okay? It was really a celebration of, a manifestation of, a partaking in the, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit bestowed upon the church by the risen Christ within the ordained ministry of the church. It was a charismatic event. Okay? Faith and sacramental life. Now, when I use Catholic as a big C, primarily I mean this. Secondly, what do I mean when I use Catholic as a big C? No, not exactly. To, to me, uh, the way I distinguish that is I say that's Catholic with a small c. What's, an, what's another one? No, that's, that's number three, and when I mean that, I'll say Roman. How about the three streams? Is that included under Well, it's under that, but what I'm referring to here when I say are those present or contemporary... Communions or fellowships, ecclesial communions, church communions or fellowships in the world that together comprise the once undivided church. Essentially, it would have to be any church communion in the world that still today holds to the canon of Scripture, the apostolic ministry, the faith as expressed in the creeds and the ecumenical councils, and to the sacramental life of the church. So, simplifying again, because there are some smaller bodies that would fit into this, when I refer to a big C Catholic in this definition... Of whom am I speaking? Yeah. Roman Catholics. Well, let's put them last. We'll go in alphabetical order. Anglicans. Eastern Orthodox. 
and Roman Catholic, only because it's an R, okay? Um, uh, there are some smaller bodies. There are some Lutherans in Scandinavia that have maintained all four of these. Um, there's a, a communion called the Old Catholic Church Communion uh, of Utrecht, etc. There are some smaller bodies. There, uh, Moravians, I believe, to some degree have maintained these. But essentially speaking, I'm referring to Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and of course, Anglicanism. Okay, with a big C. So we are Catholic as a big C because we are one of the fellowships or ecclesial community communions in the world today that together with the others would comprise the undivided Catholic Church. Does that make sense to everyone? If it were undivided. These two, yeah, these three coming together, you would have the undivided church. That's why I say to people, you know, when they say, well, we got to make this change, da, da, da. and I say, look, the first thing we should be focused on is reuniting the undivided Catholic Church. Then we can discuss anything you want, even things I disagree with. We can discuss the ordination of women. We can discuss the uh, papal jurisdiction over the whole church. We can discuss purgatory. We can discuss anything you want, but we'll discuss it as the Catholic Church, which means no one part of the church will act unilaterally from the rest. But the more we make changes, each of these communions, even if you're doing it for a good cause, you believe, the less likely we will ever achieve, or be the answer, rather, to the prayer of Christ, that they may be one, as you and I, Father, are one. That's why I stand against unilateral decision, even if you think you're right. Because when, when you are in a covenant and one party acts unilaterally, the covenant breaks down more and more. Bob? Shouldn't you say the first seven councils, even though ecumenical may mean that to you, there are those who think that the second Vatican council was ecumenical? Was the 21st. Yeah, and we're going to talk about all that today. Yeah, we're going to... We're going to well, it gets tricky. Uh, there are some that would say the first four, then seven. There are those who would say that the way that undivided church could come together is to recognize the first eight, and it's all very tricky. This is my, one of my favorite topics, but we'll get into that. But for simplicity, uh, for simplicity, yes, I would agree with you, the first seven. Okay. All right. So, any questions before we, we move on? I would say that because you're baptized, there's only one church to be baptized into. You're not baptized a Roman Catholic, or you're not baptized an Eastern Orthodox Christian. You're not baptized a Presbyterian. People will say to me, I was baptized a Methodist. No, you weren't. You were baptized a Christian. You're baptized into the one Catholic church. I would say that as far as these ecclesiastical bodies, these um, denominations... 
so every person who's baptized belongs to the Catholic Church. But I would say that denominations participate in that church to greater or lesser degrees insofar as they participate in those four. And so that's why I, for example, as much as I love the Wesleyan movement, the, especially in its origins, I could not be, even if the Wesleyan movement was exactly as John and Charles wanted it to be, um, I could not be part of it. Um, uh, but in, in one sense, I couldn't be Roman Catholic either because it's added to that. But, yeah. Yeah, I would say there's Catholic Christendom and there's Protestant Christendom. And, uh, um, and so I would say that we belong, as Anglicans, we belong to both. We belong to both. We are really that bridge between Protestant Christendom and Catholic Christendom. It was interesting. A woman in the, uh, the cafe down the street the other day said to me, uh, oh, so Father, what church are you with? I said, Holy Trinity Anglican Church. She said, Oh, that that's really Catholic-based. That's a Catholic-based church. And I said, Yeah, yes, our foundation is Catholic. Yeah, right. You know, um, and uh, so you know, we we belong to Catholic Christendom as a communion. Now, uh, it's not very politically correct to say that others do not, but you know, I would say that historically. If you throw out something that was essential to being the church in the undivided church, then that's your choice, and you're you know you're moving away from that. But I would say that we have to. A good example I use is a fictitious example, and they're they're better to use because you're not beating someone over the head. If, for example, Martin Luther had been successful in deleting the book of James from the New Testament canon. That's something he wanted to do, okay? Had he been successful, and praise God that he wasn't, but had he been successful, um, in dialogue with the Lutheran Church, we should say, um, look, we respect you, we love you, uh, you have places where you can really challenge us, and that's great, Here's a place where we can challenge you. James was received by the whole church East and West as being canonical. You need to embrace James anew in our dialogue. And if they said, well, but we've been without James for about 400 plus years now, and we are no worse the where. We still believe in the Trinity we still believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We still believe in the sacraments. Uh, we're no worse the where because we don't have James. Then what I would say our position should be in that is you're asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't be, can we survive without James? Are we worse the where? The question should be, did God intend for James to be canonical? And if the witness of the undivided church is yes, then you need to come back and embrace James as being canonical. It's not, can I survive without James? You know? um, and so what I would say is to those denominations that have moved away from any of this, that we should say, you know, look, um, without speaking to how God works, 
this is what we have received, and we invite you to come back to it. Does, is that helpful? Joan and then Bob. Is there a, another uh, category that we might call heretical, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses and the, and the Mormons? I'd say they're outside Christianity. I mean, for me, I know this doesn't sound very PC, but talking about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses is like saying, where do Muslims and Hindus fit into it? Um, We have to remember that uh, Mormonism, um, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three not distinct persons, but distinct gods. That is not Christianity. Um, and so the, the view is very different from Christianity, um, uh, as, you know, as it's been revealed by God. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity, and they deny the incarnation in the sense that God became man. They say an agent of God became man. Um, but they deny the incarnation as historically, uh, understood. So to me, when you deny the Trinity and you deny the divinity of Jesus, you're something other than Christian. One thing that's good is that they now no longer say that they're Christian. I just had two Jehovah's Witnesses recently come to my house and they said, we want to make it clear that we are followers of Jehovah. We are not Christians. Christians are those that believe in the Trinity and believe in the divinity of Jesus. We are not them. We are not Christian. To which I said, well, apparently, we agree on something. <laughs> okay? Um, what did they say to that? <laughs> they, they were happy about it. Really? Yeah. And, and I respected that, actually. I, you know, I, I like that better than, oh, we're, you know, Christian just means as long as you believe something about Jesus. You, you know? And uh, so, yeah. So I would say that they are completely another topic, you know. So I would say that Christendom is divided into uh, Catholic Christendom and Protestant Christendom. And Anglicanism is really both. But its nature is only one. It's Catholic Christendom. Um, That's why when people say, ah, you know, we're just too Catholic, that'd be like Sarah saying to me, ah, our family is so McKinnon. Well, of course it is. You you know what I mean? And so, but people don't understand that. If they mean Roman Catholic, that's a different topic. But by saying, oh, you know, our local Anglican church is too Catholic, you know, that's like saying it's too Christian. You know, if you really understand the definition of the word. Okay. Um, Yes. No, I mean, yes, because they, because they were received by the whole church as rightly articulating 
the faith uh, in Holy Scripture, which rightly articulates what is apostolic. Um, and so, um, but they're authoritative because they're scriptural. And the scriptures are authoritative because they rightly articulated what was apostolic, which we received from, from Christ. Um, and so, yeah, no, they, they, cannot be, they cannot be changed. One reason I asked the question, yeah. it occurs to me that when you get to the, I can't remember which, the sixth or the seventh council, it is organized and it came about because there was a question that the first four or five uh, didn't actually decide correctly, according to the fathers who decided to organize that particular council. In other words, they were amending what seemed to them originally to be the total yeah. church. Yeah. They just arbitrarily chose the first seven councils, and all I would ask is, why stop there? Why can't you amend it? Yeah. Um, uh, I'll, I'll get into that when we get into the councils. But I would say that I would challenge your interpretation that they were amending rather than going further than the first four. Uh, I, I believe you're talking about the sixth council, which dealt with the wills of Jesus. Um, does the person of Jesus have one will or two wills? And what they would say is that the, the fourth council of Chalcedon didn't address the wills, it addressed the nature. So they went further than the council of Chalcedon, but they weren't amending the council of Chalcedon. So I, you know, I would challenge that in, in interpretation. Also, by definition of an ecumenical council, for it to be ecumenical, it's not that all the bishops of the world got together and pronounced something. It was what made it ecumenical is that it was received by the whole church over time as being ecumenical. And that's so it's not just the bishops decreeing from on high, it's that it's received by the whole church. So, the, you know, the question becomes really is that with, without doubt, uh, the faith of at least the faith articulated in, if not the wording, um, the faith that is expressed in the first seven are received by the whole church east and west. The latter 14 councils are received only by Rome um, and have never received universal assent of the church. So by definition, they are not ecumenical. By definition, they're not Catholic. And even Pope Paul VI referred to them as the 14 general councils of the West as opposed to ecumenical councils, which was uh, a real ecumenical gesture at, at the time. Uh, but unfortunately, um, uh, you know, the uh, Council of Vatican II is considered by Rome to be the 21st ecumenical council of the Church, although it's never been received ecumenically. By the church, so it, it, it's kind of like my saying: we're going to take, we're going to have consensus on whether or not uh, I'm going to. Let's, let's throw out something fictitious. I'm changing the name from vestry to parish council. Okay, now I want to see what consensus we have here, but I'm going to tell you what your opinion will be. You will all 
support it. Anyone unclear about that? Now, do we have consensus? Yes. That's the Roman definition of an ecumenical council. It's absolutely historically absurd and flies in the face of what true Catholicity is. And uh, so... Yeah, and they declared it as such. And that was it. Um, you know, uh, we can declare a lot of things, but whether or not they're received is, you know. Victory in Vietnam. Yeah, that's right. Okay. It would be like you pointing to a kid on the street and saying, she's a McKinnon. I've adopted her without an adoption proceeding taking place. Right. Right. There's no proceeding there. Right. No process has unfolded. There's a formal process that has to occur. Absolutely. Can I ask you just a for instance with respect to, because um, this idea about received by the church, as you've pointed out, does not mean um, signed off on by all of the bishops. It's mean mm -hmm. whether or not the people, the body of Christ as a whole, accept um, mm -hmm. the decree of um, one of the uh, uh, one of the outputs of uh, Vatican II were substantial changes uh, in the liturgy, which have sat ill with many many uh, Roman Catholics ever since, and there's attempt now, to, as you know, so um, including the present Pope. Correct. So uh, what? What, right, when, well, changed my <laughs> So, when, the, but the, the issue is what are, when you talk about received by the body of Christ, would you say, just as an, a concrete instance, that that liturgical change has not been received by the whole Roman Catholic Church? Yes. Okay. And, and, and I'm moving away from that now. Um, you know, let me give you an example without getting into whether you're in favor or against it, the ordination of women as priests. In 19, again, this is a bit simplistic. In 1976, and I think 75 in Canada, but for simplicity purposes, 1976, the General Convention of the Episcopal Church opens up the ordination process as priests and bishops to women. Okay. They believed easily in 25 years, give or take a few, but by the, by the year 2000, in the year 2000, anyone remember that? Um, uh, but by the year 2000, that this would pretty much be accepted by the Anglican Communion as, as a whole, okay, pretty much by the old Catholic communion of Utrecht, which I made mention of earlier, okay, that major headway would be made by the year 2000 in Rhodes, though not an official change in policy, but a real push within the Roman Catholic Church. And even some shaking of the ground in the Orthodox Church. They believe that? Oh, yeah. 
because they believe this was a natural development that just, you know, prejudice was getting in the way, but that it would happen. Okay. Here we are, not just 25-ish years later. Here we are 35 years later. Okay. Where are we in the reception by the Christian faithful in this matter? Let's add the evangelicals, by the way, on this, and Protestants in general. Any strong agreement in the evangelical world on this matter? No. No, absolutely split uh, on this, and has caused more division in the evangelical world over this. In the Anglican Communion, they thought fully accepted by 2000, at least by this particular fellowship or branch of the uh, of Catholic Christendom. Um, where, where are we in the Anglican Communion? Absolutely split. In fact, uh, the majority still do not accept it. Women as deacons, yes, but the majority still of Anglicans in the world do not accept women as bishops. In fact, it's only the Episcopal Church the Anglican Church of Canada, and I think New Zealand, that has officially adopted women as bishops, out of, so three out of 38, but major split. Even among Orthodox Anglicans, this is the white elephant in the room. This is the white elephant in the room when the bishop and I sit down to dinner, right? So it's still a major split. Old Catholic Communion, literally split in half because of this. The Polish National Catholic Church completely pulled out of the Old Catholic Communion of Utrecht and then they severed ties with us in 1978 uh, over, over this uh, issue. By the way, this also led to the whole continuing movement and now we got five billion Anglican bodies because of the unilateral decision, okay? Uh, the the church the Catholic Church of Germany the what's that in Russia yeah so there's there's different ones in there um, major split Roman Catholicism has only depending on your point of view but however you want to put it has only hardened their position not softened their their position on this oh. what's that not actually true. Very thought to be true because of where we live. There are a lot of laity in this particular society and culture that are open to it, okay? Wouldn't know how to articulate it theologically, mind you, but they are open to it. But throughout the world, it is, it's not true that the majority of Roman Catholic laity are open to it. They're actually not. But it is true, when I say hardened, I am referring to the magisterium has only hardened their position. In the Orthodox Church, there actually was a big movement. This stirred a big movement of women to really take a role in studying theology and the fathers, etc., etc., and to put out a statement. And you know what they did? They came out against it. So... Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's very solid. You, you got a couple of people, but they would say this would have to be received by all of orthodoxy 
But uh, essentially speaking, the women came out against it. This big woman's movement in the Orthodox Church came out against it. So as far as reception of the laity, it is far from being a settled matter, even 35, 36, whatever it is, I can't count, but wherever we are, years later uh, in the church. And so, you know, what I would say is this is what unilateral decision-making leads to. It has caused fractures in the evangelicals, in the Anglican communion, in the old Catholic communion. They've only hardened their position, and they've solidified their position uh, in, in that issue. But yeah, so that would be a modern example. What's funny is that it was the progressives on this issue that originally said, look, let those of us who want to do it, do it, and we'll let it be a matter of reception. And, you know, it will have to be received by the whole before it becomes forced upon everyone. That was their big position. Well, guess what? They're not saying that anymore because to their surprise, it's, it's gone the other way, okay? And so they're now saying, well, we can't wait for it to be received by the, by the whole because it's a justice issue. We need to get it done. And so they're saying we're going to force people to accept it. And uh, so that's, that's the issue. Um, oh, it, w- it wouldn't even be comparable. I mean, that would be a vast minority on any of those. Vast minority. Um, so, um, so reception is important, but it's supposed to be the whole church discerning something. I'm for discerning almost anything. I mean, you know, I even think the issue coming up over homosexuals was good for the church to some degree because I do believe the church had to apologize for some of its behavior that led within the culture to... um, fear of homosexuals, and physical, verbal, emotional abuse of homosexual persons. So I'm not against dialogue. I believe, though, if the church is the body of Christ, we have to deal with it as a family. Where does the church begin? With Christ. Right, where, though? Not with whom? (laughs) Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. So here we have the world. All right, here we got the world east and west, okay? The church begins in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, God incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, dies for the sins of the world, is raised from the dead bodily, and breathes into his church the gift of the Holy Spirit into the ordained ministry of the apostles, and then ascends into heaven and sends from his Father the Spirit to bathe the church in the presence of the Spirit so that it's no longer individuals who have the Spirit, priests, kings, prophets, but God's people. Okay, everyone with me? All happens in Jerusalem. Then Stephen is killed. Who was one of the main people who killed him? Paul. Paul. That's why deacons shouldn't mess with their bishops, you see. Cause, all right. Um, uh, in Jerusalem. But because of that, the gospel starts to go out throughout the whole world. 
Okay, and it spreads where? To Samaria? Well, it does to Samaria. But in particular, the ends of the earth eventually. It goes from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But it goes from city to city. Why? Well, before that. That's where the people were. Exactly. The Roman Empire was built upon the foundation of the Greek Empire. It had a Jesus was a Jew who lived in a Roman society but a Hellenistic culture. Okay? Um, the culture was still Hellenistic. The Greek Empire was built upon what? City states. Okay? City states. And so as the gospel spread, it went from city to city. Okay, the apostles would go from city to city and proclaim the good news. The apostles, however, kept moving on to the next city, okay, until someone killed them, and then that pretty much slowed them down. <laughs> All right. Um, and what they would do, however, is in each city, and we know this from both the scriptures and the earliest writings of the fathers, and you know this because you've read them both, and you've read uh, uh, Callistos Ware's book, The Orthodox Church, in each city you would have bishops surrounded by presbyters, subsequently called priests, and deacons. Okay, And people who lived in the country would travel into the city for the markets, uh, for entertainment, etc. The, the people who were Christian also came to the city to be with their bishop, to celebrate the Eucharist, to prepare for baptism, to have teaching, to have fellowship. Okay? They would come into the city. Everyone with me? Okay. Eventually, every city would have a bishop. Now, essentially, it was like what we would consider a congregation. Okay? In the ancient church, Marlborough, being a city, would have a bishop. So let's say I would be the bishop. I'd be surrounded by some presbyters, like Bruce and Andrew, and some deacons, like Susie and Rhonda. And we would minister to those in the city and the surrounding region, like Hudson and Northborough and Southborough and Westborough and Shrewsbury, etc. Then the next bishop might be in Worcester, okay? Uh, and he would be surrounded by his priests and deacons and would minister to those in, like, Auburn, and what's another, Oxford, Clinton. and Clinton, okay? Chris, you look like you're confused. Is that just your face, or? Just that's just the way it is? Okay. 
All right. I just wanted to make sure. I'm thinking, I was thinking because, you know, he graduated seminary uh, much more recently than I, and he had this look like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I was like, you know, who knows? I may have Alzheimer's for all I know. And he's like, what planet is this guy on? Okay. All right. That's it. So, um, so in each city, there would be a bishop surrounded by presbyters, priests, and deacons, and they would minister to the people in that city and the surrounding region. But now, if, if this were the ancient world, who do you think would hold more stature? The bishop in Marlborough? Or the bishop in Boston? No, stature. Who would hold more? I, did, I didn't ask ecclesiologically their status. I said as far as stature, who would carry more influence? The larger one. I'm not talking about who in their ordination is one higher than the other. They are absolutely equal. The fact is, is that in that culture, if Boston is seen as the center of this area and a much bigger metropolitan, the person there may have contacts with the local governor and do you see what I mean? And that kind of stuff. And they're going to carry more weight. Okay. Is it in now? This is where we get into it. Is it an actual weight of jurisdiction or is it a place of honor, a moral authority? It's a moral authority. It's honor. The bishop in Marlborough and the bishop in Boston are absolutely equal. Okay. Moral authority? Why is it a moral authority? They both have the same moral authority. The, all right. Uh, let me. Let me. Uh, in well, yeah. All right. Regardless of what how you interpret that, this is how I'll I'll do it. Um, Bob, will you take offense at anything? Because I, I need to use this as an example, so sure. don't take offense no, at it. You can't offend me. Bob, in our church family, Bob and Don Richards, are they equal? No. Yes. In our... <laughs> quiet, you. Are they equal? Yes. Yes, they're both laypersons in the church. They're absolutely equal. Do they have different functions in the church? Yes, one's a warden, one's not. If Don tomorrow were to step down from being rector's warden and Bob was elected, he couldn't canonically, by the way, because he's a postulant, but let's say that that wasn't the case, right? And Bob was put in tomorrow as the new rector's warden. Let's be honest. Who's going to carry more moral authority in the church, Don or Bob? Who? Don, exactly. What do you people are, <laughs> yeah. Don would. Don would carry more weight with people than Bob would. Yeah, a a absolutely. I still don't understand where it's moral authority. Influence, I can understand. All right, then but I'll use, I'll change the word to influence then. I'll change the word to influence then. To me, they are very much related, but... Don's moral authority in our church, I would say, in his, meaning his influence and how he carries that. They may have the same morals and moral authority, but Don's going to carry more weight. If Don stands up and says, let's say that tomorrow, let's say that tomorrow we, let's say Rome said, you can have St. Anne's for free. Take it tomorrow. 
and Bob stands up and says, hey, man, let's go. And Don says, I don't know, I got a lot of reservations. Let me tell you who's going to carry that argument. Don Richards is going to carry that argument. Yeah. <laughs> Your name should be Charlie. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. Okay. Do you see my, my point? So if you want to use the word influence, that's fine. But I would say they still they have the same moral authority, I guess, but, but the fact is uh, that Don would carry it in that example. Absolutely. Um, and so it's just like in, when, when we gather at a diocesan synod, every priest there is equal. Every priest is equal. But there are certain priests, when they speak, will carry an argument on the floor of synod. They have more influence, you know. Um, that's just a fact of life. That's they have everywhere. more influence. What's that? That's true everywhere. That's true everywhere. Then there's those of us who think we carry more influence. Yes. Right? Don't the Orthodox use metropolitan as a title? Yeah. And th th we're heading to this. This is all really honorary stuff and not you're a bishop, you're a priest, or you're a deacon. Everything else is, is titles, and we'll get into, we'll get into that. Um, so the fact is, is that you may have all these cities around Jerusalem, and they each have a bishop in them, and they're each ministering to their city and to the countryside around that city. Okay? But in this region... Who carries more influence? The Bishop of Jerusalem. A absolutely. Absolutely. So what happened was the gospel continued to spread throughout the known world. And in each city, you had bishops, priests, you had a bishop, and then you surrounded by his priests, presbyters, and his deacons. Okay, but because of the significance of certain cities, I'm sorry, I just use it so much that you'll just have to translate it in your head. I'm going to use the word moral. Certain bishops carried a, a stronger moral authority. So, for example, later on slightly in history, in the eastern capital, what was the eastern capital? Constantinople. That bishop is absolutely equal to all of these bishops. These bishops here are all equal to him. He's equal to Jerusalem and Jerusalem to him. But he's going to carry more weight. Just one second. And not only is he going to carry more weight in his area, but who's going to carry more influence uh, even among these two? Constantinople or Jerusalem? Constantinople because it was the capital of the Eastern Empire, okay? You end up with four of these centers in the East. Antioch and Alexandria, together with Jerusalem and Constantinople. They were the four, they were considered the four patriarchs of the East. They were considered the first among equals. Okay? The first among equals. And, and Alexandria. Alexandria in Africa. Antioch in Syria, where they were first called Christians according to the Bible. 
Jerusalem, the mother of the church, and Constantinople eventually because it's the capital of the Eastern Empire. Okay? These four were known as the four patriarchs of the East. They were considered the first among equals. Their authority, however, was a moral authority or an honorary authority, not a uh, one of jurisdiction. The example I often use is that when uh, I was a kid, I was the youngest of six born to my mom and dad. We had McKinnon Day on my father's birthday every year, July 5th, because everyone had it off because of July 4th, okay? And uh, we would celebrate McKinnon Day. We'd have a big picnic, and the four boys would play basketball. Now, we're talking, I'm probably seven, my other brother is, you know, nine, my other brother is, is 15, my other brother, right? We all get together, and my father says, before anyone eats, before the boys play basketball, we're going to pray. Did we pray? Yes. Absolutely. Because my father actually had a jurisdiction, so to speak, over us all, because we were all younger, okay? All right? Now go forward in time 30-something years. We're there, right? Most of us are all married. We're all around, right? And we're all there with our own kids, maybe, some of us anyway, right? And we're there. And, my, and it's even held at someone else's house. And they're serving the food, and we're about to play basketball. Take my leave. <laughs> right? We're about to play basketball. Everyone else is about to dig in the hot dogs. And my father comes out and says, before anything happens, we're going to pray. Did we pray? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Does he carry an actual jurisdictional authority over the family? No. no. But his moral authority is still very clear, isn't it? And he could call the family as the patriarch to prayer. And if there's a family meeting... Okay, who's going to preside over that meeting as long as he's alive? He is. That's where this came in. They carried that moral or honorary authority. They were considered the patriarchs or the fathers of the others. They were considered the first among equals. And if there were gatherings of the family, councils, whether they were local councils or ecumenical councils, if they were in their area, they would be the ones who would preside over them. Who is, locally speaking, in this locale, um, besides the bishop, when the bishop is absent, who's the father of this family here? I am. So when a vestry meets, who presides at the vestry? I do. And according to the bylaws, in fact, a vestry should not meet without the priest unless the priest is gone for a prolonged period of time and gives permission for that to go on. Okay? That's what the bylaws say. It's the same idea. Now, does that mean I tell Sandra's a member of the vestry? Do I tell her, this is how you vote? No. no well, I mean, I may go to her house. The, I may go the, the night before to her house and have a couple of drinks and say, look, I'm having a few problems with Bob. I need your vote to take him out, you know. What do you want in the church, Sandra? We can make it happen, you know. 
But aside from politics, can I tell her how to vote? No. But I will preside over the vestry, the vestry meeting, okay? Um, that's what they were. They were patriarchs. They were fathers. That's what pater, patriarchs. They were considered the first among equals, and they provided, they presided, rather, at the councils of the church. Okay, Joan? Um, okay. Um, in the West, there was only one that really held this authority. Okay? That's because you've got to remember, in the Celtic lands, there were no major cities. Okay? There were a lot of monasteries. There was a lot of farmland, a lot of cattle. Okay? But there were no major cities. All the areas around Germany, going up to Scandinavia, were considered by the Romans to be barbaric, barbarian lands. Okay? So, the really, the only one to really hold a, the place of a patriarch, first among equals, and to preside at all councils in the West was whom? Rome. Rome. Was Rome. Okay. Um, it's the only one in, in the West. Now, remember, in the Twelve Apostles, there's order within the church. Were all disciples of Jesus apostles? No. Were all apostles disciples? Yes. Okay, so right there we've acknowledged that there is an order or a hierarchy. There is, by Jesus' choosing, disciples, that is, followers of him, who have submitted to a discipline, disciples, and then among them there are apostles as well. Within the apostolic age, there are also bishops, priests, and deacons. Are, is every individual uh, an apostle in that sense of holding the office? No, we very so there's this order, right? But with even among the apostles, was there any order, or were all 12 considered well, they were equal, but did any have a, a were any set apart? Yes. <laughs> Wait till I give the answer and then go, that's right. <laughs> Peter, James, and John were the inner circle. And then within them was there one, Peter. Peter was not what the, what the Rome claims, but he was a lot more than what Protestants claim. This is the problem in the church is Peter really was often the spokesperson for the apostles. He was recognized clearly in the writings of the early church fathers as being the chief of the apostles. And, and then with him was an inner circle of James and John, and then you had the, the twelve, okay? Um, so there was order from the beginning, okay? These five were the patriarchs. Their C's, S-E-E-S, which means the chair of authority, um, was known as the patriarchettes. Patriarchettes. Sounds like a basketball team. Right? <laughs> the Roman patriarchettes! <sighs> okay, yeah. Okay. Um, so these four. So each city had a bishop. 
and he would be, they were more like congregations, really, okay? Um, but each one had a city. Now, one part of the world that was a little bit different was way over here. And the reason it was different, it was part of the whole Catholic Church, okay? So I shouldn't make it a solid line, but because it's not cut off, but it's different, okay? Um, the reason is, is that there's no major cities here, okay? So it doesn't develop with the diocesan model as the rest of the church does, okay? Um, because the influence of the Roman Empire was less, and at times non-existent there, it didn't tend to, be, to develop that legalistic mindset of the Roman Empire, so it tended to be a little bit more mystical, a bit more like the East. Theories by scholars, trade routes made it that way. Okay, um, So it was more monastic in its, in its setup and not diocesan. Okay, uh, tended to be more mystical, and less legalistic, okay? Didn't really speak the developing language as much as the rest of Western Europe, okay? Had local language and customs. Had the same essence of the divine liturgy or the mass throughout the world, but a different rite, R-I-T-E, than uh, much of the other places in the West, okay? What was this land known as? Yeah. yeah. The Celtic lands in the land of, back then it was called Britain. O-N. The Celtic lands in the land of Britain. This is where our ancestors come from in the undivided church. Yes. Oh, there, there, there was. In fact, many scholars would say whether it must have been trade routes. They're not 100% sure how. But the, this part of the church had more in common with that part of the church that was further away than it did with the part that was much closer in many ways. It had a different date of Easter, by the way, as the East did from the West. Different tonsure which sounds ridiculous to us, but was very significant. I decided to go with both the Roman and the Celtic tonsure myself, um, you know, to show, to bring peace, you know. Um, but this land, um, there. Okay. Um, in this church, this undivided Catholic church, okay, uh, Rome does not have jurisdiction over the church. In fact, whenever any particular bishop tried to claim any type of jurisdiction over the whole church, it was often Rome that came out and said, all bishops are equal, we may carry a greater influence, but we are, uh, all bishops are, are equal, and no one has universal jurisdiction over the church. Okay. Again, wherever the church was, it's not true that the liturgy was identical. 
however the essence of the liturgy was. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Um, so the essence of the liturgy was the same. The sacramental, it was not true that they all spoke the same language. Okay, it's not true that um, uh, they all were under the Bishop of Rome, etc., etc. Okay, what did hold this church together was that they, there was one canon of Holy Scripture. There was one sacramental life expressed in the liturgy that was basically the same in essence. Okay. There was one um, faith. Okay. And uh, one apostolic ministry. What was different, what was distinctive uh, in the Celtic rite back in the period that you're talking about? Um, the order, really, of the, of the Mass was, was different. The, uh, if you look at the serum, uh, use and some of the more uh, other ancient rites, you'll see that they begin with, with litanies, actually. Um, the procession, it, the, the priest would lead the procession in, not come last. Uh, that's more of a Roman influence of the, of the highest authority coming in at the, at the end. Kind of as like I say, I'm like Santa Claus at the end of Thanksgiving parade, you know. Uh, in the Celtic lands, the priest actually led the, you know, the people into worship. I, I think you can make a good argument for both, by the way, but uh, it is what it is. Um, uh, the colors, liturgical colors, uh, were, were different. Um, um, yeah, lots of leprechauns. They were the servers, uh, the, the leprechauns. Um, certainly the language would be the vernacular, um, and um, I, I think that would be a lot of it. Yeah, that'd be, that would be a, a, a lot of it. Um, uh, so the, but it's, most, it's more the, the order that was different, you know, where things came in the, in the Mass, but, yeah. Yeah, Praveen? Jerusalem being the first church was the first, you know, the, the prime, or the, the one with the moral authority. And then Constantinople came around and became the capital, and so the bishop of Constantinople had more moral authority than the bishop in Jerusalem. Actually, Jerusalem lost its moral authority fairly early on. It was always a very divided city, and it was really only counted among the five because it was the mother of the church. So when when the bishop in Rome came about, did he become the one with the moral authority, given that Rome was now, quote-unquote, the center of the universe? Yes, because all roads lead to Rome, and this is where I was heading. Among the apostles, there was an inner circle. Among the inner circle, you know, there was that. And so there was also an order among the five. So, I mean, it's easy. If you're, if you're one of these cities and you're gathering in Antioch, who's going to preside? Right, the Patriarch of Antioch is going to preside. What happens, though, if it's a meeting of the, the eastern part of the world? Who's going to preside? Well, Constantinople will. Well, what if it's a meeting of the whole world? Then Rome would, okay? 
And so the order was Rome. Why Rome if it was the whole world? Because it was the whole world, culturally. Okay. Yep, it was the capital. And when back then, the world was the Roman Empire. So Rome, and then New Rome, Constantinople. And then... Um, is it Antioch and Alexandria or Alexandria and Antioch? I'm getting old. I think it's Antioch then Alexandria and then lastly Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay. So among all the bishops there are five patriarchs. Among the patriarchs there's an order. But order does not mean inequality. It's really a matter of honorary authority and presidency, okay? Not jurisdiction. Bob? In those monastic areas, both east and west, it is true also, isn't it, that they could not ordain anyone, that only a bishop could be brought in to ordain? Yes. Even in the Celtic lands, it's interesting where they followed a very different model. For example, if Sandra was the head of uh, an, a, um, uh, an abbey and a convent, okay, and this is very different than all the rest of Christendom, okay, if she were the head, she would actually be the spiritual authority, even if I was a bishop in her uh, abbey, okay. I would be part of, under her spiritual authority. However, if an ordination was to take place, she couldn't do it. Sometimes the male abbots were not priests or bishops, so they couldn't do it. So they would have their bishops do it. So that was always maintained. Absolutely, that was maintained. But one of the things that really made the Celtic lands distinct was that really the abbot or the abbess was considered the authority until Theodore of Tarsus becomes Archbishop of Canterbury in the latter 600s and brings in the road system and the diocesan model. Those two things really bring this land more into the rest of Western Europe. Who else had a hand up? Yeah, they may not be ordained. They may be religious. Just, just religious. Religious, but not actually or, ordained. Yeah. I think Karen. Karen? Well, even still, but they still did have bishops. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All areas of the church had those four things. Absolutely. And then they would come into the diocesan model later. Now, remember that, was there someone else? Yeah, Joan? I can tell. It's because for me, and I may be misunderstanding the, the, the meaning of the word, but for me, moral authority means a kind of correctness or a rightness that is different from influence. You can have it. You can have it. We'll just have to let, let it go. I, I, I just see them as related. Maybe they're not. In my use, they're related. Rome chose to exercise influence that was not moral necessarily. Back then it was. 
Back then it was. Um, in, in fact, in the very early church, it was really the Bishop of Rome who uh, frequish, frequently and freakishly always came out on the right side of things. And it was later that you really see a departure from that in claims to jurisdiction and so forth. But in the early church, his moral authority was great. I, I mean, okay. yeah, that's just how I'm going to use it. You can translate it any way you want. Okay. Yeah. So it's more than influence. I I mean I would say I don't have a I'd have to look it up to give you any more of a does anyone is it like cloud kind of? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that moral yeah, is authority is not the same as morals. Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah. That's how I've always perceived it. Okay. Yeah. And that uh, right of command, uh, in a certain sense, carries the the pronouncements carry a sense of being right, and I think that's the overlap with the The overlap of moral, but without right necessarily always being right in a moral in a moral sense. Just this is the correct thing to do in this, that, or the other situation. Right. Moral situation. Because they say so, and because. Morally speaking. Morally speaking. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I, I think that's helpful, actually. So, in the early church, the gospel spread throughout the known world. Bishops were set up in every city, surrounded by their priests and their deacons. They administered to their city and the surrounding region. Uh, whenever there was disputes that would arise, they would appeal to the local patriarch, okay, who held a presidency among the bishops, uh, and an influence, okay, but were considered first among equals in fathers. That's where the word pope comes from, by the way. It simply means dad, (laughs) papa, okay? It doesn't mean, oh, great one, right? Um, Otherwise, I'd be, you'd hear me referring to Pope Christine a lot. Um, um, Uh, So, you know, they were patriarchs. They were fathers of the church, first among equals. They held a presidency. They held what I would call a moral authority. So all bishops were equal. None had jurisdiction over any other. But when there was a dispute, they would appeal to the the larger body. And the last thing I have to say is that this group was held together by those four things. One canon of scripture, one sacramental life articulated within the liturgy, uh, which wasn't identical, but was essentially identical everywhere in the world, the mass as we know it today. One faith, later subsequently articulated in the creeds and the ecumenical councils of the church, and one uh, apostolic ministry. That's what united this church. That's what I, this is, by the way, who I am. If Anglicanism departs from this, I won't be an Anglican, okay? Uh, I'm not Roman because in my studies, when I was Roman Catholic, I was in the Roman seminary, and the more I studied the scriptures and the early church fathers, the more I realized, Houston, we have a problem because this is who I am. I was a Catholic, and I found that, that I was too Catholic to remain Roman, okay? 
So my loyalty is not to Anglicanism or Eastern Orthodoxy or anything else. My loyalty is to this church, okay, that's up here. Um, and I believe that the true vocation of Anglicanism is to be this church in the world today. But unless our clergy and people understand this, we're going to move closer or further away from it by accident, depending on our just our personal views. Okay. Um, No, they, they will say, they'll refer to them as C's, S-E-E-S, yeah, the chair. Um, also, the word for chair is cathedra, which is where people will go into a big church and say, wow, this is like a cathedral. Cathedral is technically not a type of architecture. You, this could be a cathedral if our bishop decided it to be, and this is where his official chair of authority was placed, okay? Then it would be a cathedral. I'm here. But yeah, they, they were referred to as C's. But they were really like congregations back then. Okay? As the church grew, okay, so there's a few big things we got to get into. As the church grew, it became too difficult. Let's say that you, this is a city way out here, and you got the countryside around it, right? As the church grew, it became too difficult for people always to be traveling into the city to meet with their bishop. Also, in times of persecution, it could be exceptionally dangerous for people to be traveling in to meet with their bishop. Okay? So what they started to do is, let's say I'm the bishop of Marlborough. Okay? I would then say, okay... We're going to have a group of our family, what we later would be called diocesan family, that are going to gather in um, Medway, okay? Because it's too dangerous for them to travel all the way to Marlborough, okay? And I'm going to send one of my priests out to Medway. In Medway, the priest represents whom in that local gathering? The bishop. Okay, the congregation there represents what would later be known as the diocesan family in, in that locale. Later on, as they had buildings, the building would be representative of the cathedral, which is back in Marlborough. Okay, and that's how a diocese really moved from being congregations to more of a diocese. But that's why when the bishop would show up in Medway, it wouldn't be the local priest that would preside because he functions in the absence of the bishop. Okay? So when the bishop came, the bishop would preside at the Eucharist. The bishop would preach. Okay? Um, that's why it's not us in Marlboro and the diocese up in Canada somewhere. We are the diocese in this locale. We are the diocese in Marlborough. That's why when people would say, well, the Episcopal Church has gone astray, and we're going to sue and take our building because it's our building, that bad diocese. I was a minority in this, but I say, no, actually, 
It is the diocese building. And the fact is, if I in good conscience can no longer represent the local bishop in this locale, then I need to leave. And if people feel strongly for the sake of conscience, they need to leave too. But really, now, could you make the argument legally that they are the ones that abandon the faith, so therefore we are the real diocese? Yeah, you could if that's where you want to spend your energies and money. I'd rather just leave it all behind and move on with the mission of the church. Okay, But um, now in the canons of the new province that we belong to, because of fear of what's happened, they say every local church, if they own property, owns their own property. I think that's a little dangerous myself. But um, canonically, that may be true. But theologically, and according to my vows, um, who is the chief priest, liturgical officer, and pastor of Holy Trinity Marlborough? Bishop. Bishop Harvey. Um, and I function in his absence. Uh, when he's here, he presides and he preaches unless he authorizes me, like he did at the ordination. He said, I want you to preach. I said, Bishop, that's your right. I know it's my right. Don't tell me what my rights are. I'm telling you, you're preaching. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, and so, uh, uh, and I said, of course. I, what I meant to say is, you're right, sir. Not, it's your right, sir. So that's actually what he said to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, he tells me off all the time. Let the record record. He tells me off all the time. Let the record record. Um, Anyway, uh, yes, he, he tells me. I'll never, ne remind me never to say I'm tired in front of him. This is what he'll say. I'll say, gosh, I'm tired. And he'll say, you're tired. I'm tired. We're all tired. That's what we're here for. You'll know when it's time to rest, young father. You'll be dead. <laughs> so I'm very careful never to say, boy, am I tired. Um, by the way, he got that from his bishop when he was a young priest, by the way. Yeah, yeah. He just passes it on. And, uh, it was apostolic succession. <laughs> yes, apostolic succession at its best. Um, and so what happened was local congregations became dioceses in that the countryside around it started having their own churches with their own priests and et cetera, et cetera. But they were never meant to be separate identities. They were the diocese in that locale. Okay, um, This is why in the early church a piece of the bishop's host would be broken off from his Eucharist and brought to the local church by a deacon on horseback. There goes Deacon Susie <laughs> riding from somewhere in Newfoundland trying to get to Marlboro by 9 a.m. And a piece of the bishop's host would be held up and then made the sign of the cross over the chalice and it would be dropped into the chalice. And what it was a symbol to the people is that what we are doing here is in communion with our bishop. And through our bishop, we are in communion with all bishops who hold the true faith. Not only throughout the world, but throughout time, back to Christ and the apostles and forward in time, to the second coming of Jesus. So a piece of the bishop's host would have to come by horseback. Every time a mass was said? Was said. 
because the people were saying, is it valid to be at a Eucharist without our bishop? So that became the sign. If you watch me all every... All over the world? All over the world. At, well, remember, though, these were local congregations. It wasn't that far, okay, to, to the church. But what happened was, you, if you watch closely, I still symbolically do this every week. When I break the host, right after the peace, or is it right before the peace? Right after the Our Father. I break the host, I take off a little piece, and I say, Remember, O Lord, Donald, thy servant, our bishop. And I make the sign of the cross, and I drop it in. Now, it came from a Eucharist, piece of the Eucharist that I consecrated. But it's symbolic that what we are doing is in communion with our bishop. And through him, with all Orthodox Christians throughout the world, not only throughout the world, but throughout time, not only backwards in time, but forwards in time, to from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. Sandra? Is it strictly Roman that you're not supposed to, if, if you live in Northboro, that you're not supposed to say, oh, well, I, I really want to get married or I want to go to this other parish and yeah. you know, start attending somewhere else? Right. That actually, parishes were, were geographical areas um, within a diocese. And the idea was that if you're in this area, you go to that parish. And, uh, and that was very Church of England as, as well. I think we gave it up first. But, I mean, Rome now, you could leave your parish and go somewhere and, and be transferred. I don't know officially in canon law if you can do that. But I think in practice it's, it's done. But that's an interesting question. I don't know in canon law. But technically you're not supposed to say, well, I don't like that parish, so I'm going to go. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, let me say this. One fear I have in our movement is that when, if you throw off a bishop, I, I think you're, you're in danger in your soul. I think you better be D-A-M-N sure that if you are going to stand against your bishop, that you're ready to answer for it before the throne of God. So with, when we left the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts and it was no longer clear that they believed in the Lordship of Jesus, I felt I could answer for that before the throne of God. Okay, But if now we say, well, we don't like Bishop Harvey because you know, he won't do things the way we want it or he told, told us we have to use this liturgy. Well, well, see, that gets tricky, and that's why it's such a white elephant. Because what if he was to say, I'm going to force you to accept it in this parish? So that's a trickier issue, because we could make the argument that that's contrary. He can't do that, because his, his authority is based on Scripture and the patristic faith. So for him to say, I'm going to force you to do that, that's a trickier thing. But if he said... Um, uh, I don't want you to do benediction of the Blessed Sacrament in, in, in it. Uh, he would never do that. But, um, you know, we'd have, you know, say, okay, Bishop. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. In my last parish uh, out in Illinois, I said to uh, Bishop Ackerman, who was my bishop then, I said, Bishop, I want to start uh, another Mass to reach out to people in the neighborhood. Great, Father. I said, because the population is predominantly um, African-American, I want your permission to use a rite that's, uh, that's not 
in the 79 prayer book, the, what's called the Kenyan rite, not, not Susie Kenyon. <laughs> okay. It's the rite used, it's the rite approved in the Anglican Church of Kenya. And he said, you have my permission. Now, I couldn't do that on my own authority. I would need his authority as the bishop to use a rite outside of the prayer book. So I said to him, okay, bishop, and I'm going to offer it on Saturday nights. And he said, um, I'm, I'm all for you doing a contemporary type mass as a way of reaching out to the, the local neighborhood. I'm all for you using the Kenyan rite at this time. I'm all for you using praise music outside of the authorized hymnal. Um, however, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it on Sunday night, not Saturday night. And I said, Bishop, I respectfully request that you can reconsider that. The reason is, is Monday is my day off. I'm exhausted by Sunday afternoon when I get home from doing communions. It's the end of my work day. And if I want to have any time off Sunday night, it's like getting out of work on Friday night. You know, you don't work till midnight and then start Saturday as your day off. Of course, you do. <laughs> right? But for normal people, you know, you get off and I want to enjoy that. And he said, well, my issue is that even though you're going to make the argument to me, Father, that Sunday night after sundown is really Monday, and Saturday night is really Sunday because days in the time of Jesus went from sundown to sundown, not midnight to midnight. I'm going to tell you that in that mentality, in that neighborhood that you're in, they have no concept of vigil. Saturday is not going to be worshiping on the Lord's Day for them. Sunday night will be. And I want you to do that, but I'll consider it. And I said, thank you, Bishop. Call me back a few days later. I said, Father? I said, yes, Bishop. He said, um, I've... I took that into account, um, and I understand your need for that time off, um, uh, but if you're going to do this, you'll do it on Sunday night. And I said, yes, sir, thank you, and I hung up, and I did it on Sunday night for six years. Um, and so um, it's not that I couldn't say, Bishop, would you reconsider, respectfully, but once he made that decision... Because it wasn't contrary to the scriptures or the faith of the undivided church, and because he's actually the priest and pastor of that church, I did what he told me to do. Okay. Um, what, what happened just recently with Bishop Harvey? He told me to sell my Mustang, but that wasn't it. Um, I did it. Is he going to come for the auction? No. I just yeah. Okay. I want to send him a thousand dollars. He might. <laughs> That's what it costs him to come. I don't think he. He'll probably, you know, if he was going to do that, he'd send you the thousand bucks. What did he just? There was something, and we, re, I really disagreed with him. And I asked him. I said, Bishop, will you reconsider? And he said, uh, I will. And he came back and he said, this is how it is. And I said, yes, sir. That was it. And I really disagreed with him. But it wasn't contrary to the scriptures of the faith of the undivided church. So I did what he said. Um, and so that's how it was understood. So if you watch tomorrow when I consecrate, you'll see I'll break off a piece of the hook. Tomorrow, because a lot of you, uh, especially with vestments, I'm big. I'll, be, I'll make a big production about it. <laughs> okay? 
but I'll show you if you watch and I'll put that piece of the host. And what I'm saying symbolically is what we do is in communion with our bishop. Uh, it's really wonderful symbolism. Uh, why don't we reserve the bishop's host? I was just wondering yeah. In my last diocese, because we were so close, you know, the Diocese of Quincy was the Diocese of Quincy, um, on Monday, third, well, we'd gather on Holy Tuesday together for, uh, as the clergy. And each of us were told to bring a pix. And they had a large host that the, pre, the bishop consecrated, and a piece was put in. And that was put in on Easter to show the, that same symbolism. Um, but you know what? Not such a bad idea. They have something that's kept in the tabernacle, and we go to the tabernacle, and we take that piece out, and, you know, not a bad idea. Remind me to bring it up. I think, because, you know, in this Reformation that's going on, we need to capture some of this stuff anew, or it will be lost forever. Um, another thing in the Eastern Orthodox Church is similar to what we call a corporal. It has the seal of the bishop on it. And it's given to the priest, and that authorizes him wherever he goes to celebrate the divine liturgy, what we call the Mass. If a bishop comes, and you've ticked him off, and he takes it back, I don't know what it's called, but it's what we, you know, and he takes it, you can't celebrate the divine liturgy anywhere. He has removed your authority to, because that represents that seal that you have his authority in his name to do it. And so it goes back to this, that a priest doesn't have the authority in and of himself to celebrate the Eucharist. He does so on behalf of the bishop. You ask 90%, if not 99%, of the Orthodox Anglican clergy in our movement what I just told you, and they would have no clue about it. And that's why these things are important, because it's going to be lost if we don't have a movement to recapture it. I think the seminaries are part of the... They may at Neshoda. They might at Neshoda it would come up, but... Did you hear this in seminary? Yeah. Even historically, even if as something we would not do. But, yeah, so... Um, okay, so what would happen now... So you see how the diocese developed from the bishop being in the local congregation... Now, the next thing that would happen, let's say this bishop here started teaching something heretical, started teaching Jesus is not fully divine as the Father is divine. He's not of the same substance, he's of like substance as the Father. Okay? Jehovah's Witness, okay? He did that. What would happen is that he would be called to repentance. If he did not repent, he'd be called to repentance. If he did not repent, third time of asking, then they would call a council of the bishops of the local area. Who would preside over it? In this case, the patriarch in Jerusalem. Okay? They have no actual jurisdiction over this authority, but now they're gathering as a college of bishops who are all equal. He'd be called to repentance three times. If he repented, praise God. If he, was not, if he did not repent, 
then the Patriarch of Jerusalem, on behalf of all the fellow bishops, speaking not only for them, but for the church throughout the world, would say, Bishop Purveen of Southborough, we've called you to repentance. What you are teaching is not the faith of the church. It is not the faith of Holy Writ, that is the Holy Scripture. It is not the faith of our fathers. You have refused to repent. And so we acknowledge that you have removed yourself from the fellowship of the church. We acknowledge that you have removed yourself from the body of Christ and that you have cut yourself off from the sacraments. So not so much the church as it would in later days in the Roman West where they'd acknowledge that the person has excommunicated themselves. Okay? And what excommunication really meant was that we can no longer share Holy Communion together because you've removed yourself from the communion of the church. So excommunication wasn't this declaration that you're definitely going to hell. They'd leave that to God, although it's not looking good for him in this case. But what they would say is, you've removed yourself from the communion of the church. So then he would be replaced as the bishop of this little city here because he's removed himself for it. The priest. No, the bishop. Oh, okay. There. Okay. okay. And so he would be replaced. This is where Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism up to a few decades ago, this is why they said if you weren't with us, you could not receive communion. Because Holy Communion was really a celebration of, an acknowledgement of, a, a realization of, a manifestation of the communion that you share. And the fear is that if you give communion to everyone, regardless of whether or not there's communion, then it's all good, right? It's all good. So while I wouldn't draw the line in the sand where Rome does, I believe that there is a communion that does transcend our differences. I would say it has to be based on the faith of the undivided church. They're saying that people can't receive isn't something that they've pulled out of the hat just to be mean. Okay? Where do they draw the line? They would say you have to be in communion with and under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome to receive communion. Eastern Orthodoxy would say you have to be, or, well, that's not exactly true. They would say an Eastern Orthodox Christian can receive Holy Communion as well. Uh, it used to be kind of gray whether Anglicans could or not until we started fooling around with stuff, and then that changed. But our line in the sand is, is different, right? But in, you know, So it's just where you draw the line in the sand. While I wouldn't go as far as they do, saying that you have to be under, you know, in communion with the Bishop of Rome, um, I would say that, you know, look, if people are baptized and receive the, the, the faith articulated in the creeds, are sorry for their sins, and, and believe it's the body and blood of Christ, that they can receive. But it really is just a matter of where you draw the line in the sand. And really what they are really following is the practice of the ancient church in this. And saying, look, because let's say that Karen represents a group of Christians that say it's okay to get rid of the book of James. 
and Bob represents a group of Christians that say it's okay not to believe that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. And Bob believes in a group that says, well, no, you must believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but you don't have to have the apostolic succession, which would be like the Lutheran Church in the United States. And Joan represents another group, and Sandra another group, and Chris and Susie and Praveen and myself another group, right? And I say, look, we're going to get together, and we're all going to receive Holy Communion from each other then what we're saying is that these things actually do not break communion. Even though she's denied part of the Word of God, even though he's denied the ministry of the church, even though he's denied, right? So at what point do we say, okay, well now Chris has denied the divinity of Jesus, but he believes that he's divine compared to us. Well, we give him communion. What we're saying is it's all good. You can, we can all have full fellowship. And there's nothing fuller than sharing Holy Communion together. So the question becomes, in the Protestant idea, is that you give Holy Communion regardless of what people believe, as long as they're baptized, and even that is now going at the wayside. Okay? Oh yeah, that's common in the Episcopal Church. Buddhists, Hindus, anyone, because it's rude to keep them away. So anyone can, can do that, right? So what they're saying is, is that, okay, um, that this transcends our differences and will bring us to communion with each other. The problem is that in practice, that doesn't work. Okay? The other is saying that receiving from communion, when we have communion with each other, that is realizing and celebrating and proclaiming and nourishing and strengthening the communion that does exist between us. If I had to make a black and white choice between one or the other, I'd lean to where Roman Eastern Orthodoxy goes on that. Okay, in closed communion. But if um, you don't believe that the, the host or whatever it would be called in whatever particular denomination we're talking about represents the real presence, mm -hmm. um, in a sense, whatever you want to do with it, I mean, it's all good. The, prob the problem, I think, comes in when you say this represents the real presence, this is the body of yeah. Christ. I don't, for example, along those lines, I don't receive when I go to a Protestant church. The reason is, is that most of the time I'm known who I am, you know, if not by face, by collar, okay? If I receive, I believe I'm bearing witness to the fact that it is... Now, will I say absolutely that when Pastor Linda celebrates the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, that absolutely Jesus Christ is absent? No, I won't say that. I know what I have received. Christ is present in the sacraments. I don't know where outside of that. What I would say to the Methodists is come back to the apostolic succession, okay? So I won't say that he's absent. I just won't say anything. But I'm not going to receive from her and say, it's okay to do away with the priesthood. Or if she didn't believe in the real presence of Christ, as many Methodists don't, I don't want to bear witness that it's okay to deny the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And I believe by partaking, I'm saying that, look, these things are secondary matters. I don't think they're secondary matters. I think they're essential to who we are as the church, the body of Christ. And so I cannot receive from 
Pastor Linda or Pastor Joe to even make it easier. In the Protestant church, usually you're just eating a piece of bread. Literally. Right. And there hasn't been right. Right. And so I would say that I would have to bear witness to the fact that I believe it's much more than that. So I can't participate in, in that. Um, but uh, it is a, I'm, what I'm just trying to point out is that Rome isn't trying to be mean. <laughs> what they're really saying is, look, there has to be a certain level of unity. What's our requirement? Now, you go into a lot of even, and I want the recorder to hear this because it upsets me. You go to a lot of Orthodox Anglican churches, and the only announcement they make is any baptized Christian may receive Holy Communion. St. Paul would have had a fit if that was the only requirement for receiving Holy Communion, because he made it clear that there's many baptized people who should not be receiving Communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you follow the prayer book tradition and the exhortation, yes, you have to be baptized, but you also have to be sorry for your sins and have asked God for forgiveness. You also have to approach in faith and believe uh, that it's the body and blood of Christ. So if you, you read every week in our church, that's what's printed in our liturgies. But you go into a lot of churches that are even Orthodox, A-N- what are we? ACNA churches. I can't get our letters right. And they'll just say, all baptized Christians are welcome to receive communion. Really? Are we a biblical movement? Yes. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that you are offering condemnation to some people then. Is that really what you want to do? If you love them, you would warn them. Yeah. What happens when someone who is in sin, is that the right way to say it? Someone who is not repentant or someone who... That's probably a better way of saying it because I'm in sin every time I receive, but I'm repentant anyway. Not repentant or who, who, who is actually believing in, in some heresy. I mean, suppose that you receive communion but you don't believe the things that we are supposed to believe in order to receive communion. Um, what happens? The, the Bible says that you, you do partake of the sacrament, but you, you receive it not to your benefit, but to your judgment. Um, and we'll get into that more when we, do, when we look at the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. Serious. It's very serious. And this is why I'm very perturbed. I'm not where Rome is that you have to agree with everything to receive. I think we can base it on this, right? Um, but um, I think we should be careful. If we love people, we would be careful uh, about what we... You know, um, it, you know, to say, well, look, you know, um, we, we're dealing in here with fire, and this fire can purify you or it can burn you. Well, but it would be really mean if we said only certain people could play with fire, Father Michael. So give fire to anyone who wants it. That, that's a dangerous thing. Sandra? Now, both with Rome and with the Orthodox Church, you're not supposed to receive unless you've confessed and all that stuff. And if you feel that you're not in, right? Right. 
And, and I would say, you know, here's a good, here's my more evangelical Protestant side coming out. All you really, besides being baptized, need to do is just say, you know what, Lord, I may not believe everything right. I may not live right. But I'm approaching not in my righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. And man, come and get it. And I don't mean any disrespect in that, you know. But I think we're far from that when we say, even as Orthodox Anglicans, all baptized Christians are welcomed at the Lord's table. Drives me crazy. (laughs) Tell me how you really feel, Archdeacon. Yeah. Yeah. And if they don't know you, you have to tell them that who you your, are an Orthodox and who your bishop is. And who your bishop is. That's the first question they're going to ask. And it comes from this. Because if you don't know who your bishop is, then there's something up. Because your bishop is your pastor, right? And it's through him that you're in communion with the Orthodox Church throughout the world, and not only throughout the world, but throughout time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. They're following this model, you know. And they and, that's all the Eastern Orthodox churches. Right. I mean, yeah, a, 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 exactly. Now, they, they, don't, they don't accept yeah. my right. faith as, now, as... Now, we were very close to them accepting that, and it's very sad. In my opinion, and there's some people that think I'm nutty, but I don't think so. Um, I believe that the unity of East and West would have occurred for the first time, not between Rome and Constantinople, but between Constantinople and Canterbury. If it wasn't for us for the first time since the English Reformation making unilateral decisions. Um, And to me, you know, even if you're right, I can be right. Right. Let, let, let's say I, I own a place, uh, a cottage with Christine, right? And I come up there, it's freezing in here. You know, that stupid fireplace leads, lets out so much, uh, it lets out more heat than it per- gives off, right? It's freezing. We need a wood-burning stove. And Christine says to me, by the way, this whole thing would be the reverse probably, but <laughs> Christine says to me, don't you touch my fieldstone fireplace. That is the most perfect thing in here and this whole cottage it makes it and I say but we got to take it out and put in this new efficient wood-burning stove that will give off warmth am I technically right yes yes if Christine tells me now who owns the cottage we both do right (laughs) if I say well Christine doesn't know what she's Christine doesn't know what she's saying She'll learn. She'll come around in time when she's warm, when it's 14 below outside, right? And I tell the guy, go ahead and do it, right? Am I right? Could you make the argument that I'm right? Yes, but do I have? Should I do it? No. What's going to happen to the covenant? Yes. But what if she never comes around? That's my whole point. She may not, and, and the covenant's broken. And whenever a part of what the church... don't do it and she never comes around? Then it, maybe it's not meant to be. 
Like I tell all these people that want this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this in the church. I'll say, look, maybe you're right. And I'm sorry for your pain in the meantime, okay? But in the meantime, do we have the love of God? Do we get to call the unknowable God Father? Do we have salvation? Do we have the Bible as the Word of God? Do we have the sacraments? Do we... So really, what are we missing? Nothing. So you know what? We have to just, as the, it's part of the burden of being a family. You know, you have to move together as a family. And you're not missing anything in the meantime that's essential. Okay. Um, Bob? What is the validity of um, communion if the priest giving the communion doesn't believe these things? It's still valid. If he's validly ordained, he's still valid. So now there's a... Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you a few examples. Well, the presiding bishop, that's a whole nother issue. I'm gonna right, remind me to give the example of um David and Saul. Don't forget David and Saul. Now I'll answer you. I was I was down in Texas. They have a, a down there, I forget the place of it. Um anyway, beautiful retreat center. Incredible. And I was down there to correct general ordination exams. Okay, we all had to wear name tags, right? They said, "What? Oh, and who are you? We'll make out your name tag." And I said, "I'm Father Michael McKinnon, Mike." <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so um, so anyway, we all had name tags, and they would say your name, your first name, and then what diocese you were from. Okay, so in so I'm sitting at the table, and along comes this group of people. Can we sit with you, Mike? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so they all sit down, and they're from the Diocese of Utah. Now, the Diocese of Utah had a woman bishop, okay? But not only was she a woman bishop, but she was baptized. No. A Mormon. And in that diocese, when she became a Christian, was never baptized. Oh my. Now, Mormon baptism is not Christian bapti baptism. You're baptized into three different gods. So even though they use water and the right name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they do not mean, they mean three different gods. So you might as well baptize in the name of Sandra, Chris, and Susie for all I care. <laughs> all right? So, so anyway, they all sit down. Hi, Mike, you know. And then they see... They go, oh, now there's two, Mike Kenyon and Praveen. Um, so they sit down, you're from Quincy? I'm like, oh gosh, here we go. Now remember, this was long before my surgery, years, but a decade or more, and this place made the best food. I was in hog heaven, and I was the hog, Okay. I really did not want to get into it with these guys. I wanted, I had a plate that I could still think about, okay? <laughs> You're from Quincy. I said, oh gosh, here we go, because Quincy was known for not ordaining women. And I said, yes. You don't think our bishop's a bishop, do you? And I said, well, is it? Don, 
why don't we talk about what's going on in our parishes? What's going on in your parish? Answer this question first. Mike. You don't, yeah, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to love to say to people, why don't you call me what my mother calls me? Oh, is it Michael? No, Father. <laughs> Which is true, by the way. <laughs> Says something a little bit about my mother, but anyway. Um, so uh, um, I said, why don't we just talk about our parishes? No, answer the question. You don't think that she's a bishop, do you? And, and I said, how about the rest of you? What, how are you finding the experience here? Right? So they said, answer his question. And so then I, I said to someone else, I tried to change the subject with someone else, and then they said, we're not going to eat until you answer the question. So I put down my fork, which I wasn't happy about, and I said, Bishop, I don't think she's a Christian because she was never baptized. We're leaving. Good! <laughs> I can't tell you how many people came up and said to me later on how rude they heard that we were from Quincy. Okay, and blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that's exactly it. I mean, I forget debating whether or not she's a priest or a bishop, which I, by the way, I think I'm nice. I wouldn't have said no. I would have said, I don't know. You, you know? I only know what we've received. I don't go around making big statements on everyone else what they want to do and don't do. You know what I mean? If Pastor Linda came to me and said, do you think I'm a priest as you do? I said, I don't know. I know that I'm a priest, you know, and that's what I know, you know. But so I wouldn't have said no. Uh, 